This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Open, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. The title of my message is An Affectionate Appeal for the New Year. And it's based on Paul's appeal to the Corinthians in verse 58. Before I read it, let me ask you, how does our Heavenly Father motivate us to remain on mission? He gives us hope. And He gives us hope by showing us the end. I I remind you that the Bible is a narrative. It is an arc that shows to us the history of redemption, God's plan of redemption through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it culminates with God's redeemed people living in a renewed creation, the new heavens and the new earth, in His presence, world without end. Remembering that is designed to energize us, to motivate us to remain on mission, to remember where this is all heading, where it is all culminating. Now, this morning's message will come from verse 58, which is based upon that. Uh, But I'd like to begin reading at verse 50. This chapter was written by Paul to the church at Corinth, He was dealing with many problems in the church, and by the time he got to chapter 15, he had to address the matter of the resurrection of Jesus and its relationship to the resurrection of believers. And so Paul begins the chapter by defending the the historicity, the reality of the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and he demonstrates its connection to our resurrection. It is essential to the gospel message, and it is the guarantee of our own resurrection. And the resurrection of Jesus is also the model for our resurrection, if you would. It is the prototype. He is the first fruits. And so after explaining that, Paul moves to illustrations and says, uh, that the resurrection will take place in such a manner as there is continuity with who we are now, and yet discontinuity uses a seed. He says the seed must die first, but then it gives life. It's a different life, but it's the same life. It comes from the seed. And After using that and other illustrations, Paul then moves on to describe the process of the resurrection. How and when does this come about? And that's where we find ourselves in verse 50. So verse 50 from 1 Corinthians 15, and that's where I'm reading from. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And what does Paul mean by that? What Paul means is that 
these bodies as they stand, flesh and blood, they cannot enter the kingdom when it comes in its fullness, in its consummation, because they are perishable. And the perishable cannot enter into the imperishable. Verse 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. When Paul says mystery, it doesn't mean it's mysterious. A mystery refers to something that was not known or understood under the old covenant, which is now made clear in Christ, in the new covenant. So he says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That's a metaphor for what? For death. We, we believers shall not all die. However, he says, we shall all be changed. What's Paul mean by that? What he means that when the second coming of Christ takes place, some believers will be alive. So they won't die. However, all believers, the dead and the living, at that moment will be changed. And he goes on. He says in verse 52, it'll happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, meaning again the living then, shall be changed. And so those who are dead in Christ uh, at the second coming will be raised from the dead, and the living will witness the resurrection of the dead, and, and those who were raised from the dead will witness the instantaneous trans, uh, transformation of the living. <laughs> we shall all at that moment be changed for this perishable body as it stands now our bodies are perishable we're still dying for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then in other words not now but then not now the final victory is in the future, he's telling them. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and he quotes from Isaiah, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, right? The law says the wages of sin is what? death but thanks be to God who gives us the victory you see that final consummation of our victory over death he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ what the law demands from us for our sin and our guilt was paid by the Lord Jesus Christ what the law demands from us by way of obedience was earned for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore, we, we have been given this victory over death. And the final experience of that, where it's made clear, is in the end. When death itself, as it were, is wiped off the page of, of history, it is swallowed up by the grace of God, and we will all be changed who are in Christ, both the dead and the living. Therefore, verse 58, this being true is what Paul's saying. 
This being true, this being what lies ahead, therefore, my beloved brothers, there's his affection for them. Therefore, my beloved brothers, here's his appeal. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not vain. This is the word of the Lord. It's been said, whatever we hope for in the future inevitably determines how we live in the present. What we are looking forward to, what we hope for in the future will inevitably determine how we live in the present. Back when I was younger, this time of year, sometimes in November, we were looking forward to going skiing in Tahoe. (laughs) That was our hope, you know. And we were waiting for the snow, and as we are waiting for that, we are looking for that. I'm doing my squats for like a month, you know. I'm getting ready. It was determining how I was living. And when we get closer, I'm expecting to ski. I packed, rightly. I packed a coat, not my shorts. And I packed, you know, my goggles and and so forth. Whatever you hope for in the future inevitably determines how we live in the present. Um, It's also been said that hopes determine our habits. In other words, if there's a hope that remains, it will shape my habits. Uh, In recent times, I've been, uh, through the gift of these YouTube videos, uh, one of the things I've been doing is I've been watching these interviews with some of the great guitarists that I grew up listening to. And this is not something that you could have ever done back when I was 16, 17, 18 and learning guitar. And they're doing these interviews, these guitarists, and they're, and they're, and they're explaining you know, how they got that sound on that album and how they played this. And almost every single one uh, goes into how much they practiced their habit, the hours of practicing in order to pull off that lick in order to play that way. And it just took me back. I was telling Sherry, I was just, just waft of memory, you know, nostalgia because I said, that's exactly right. You know, I, I practiced scales for hours on end. And, and when we had our band together when we were 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, we would practice almost every day after school, after high school, walk over to Nelson's house, and we'd practice for hours and hours and hours, playing it again, trying it again, trying it again. And why was that? Our hope. We had a hope. What was that hope? We wanted to be professional musicians. And it shaped our habit. And the reverse could be said. You may know what you're hoping in by virtue of your habits. If you went up to me then and said, why does this kid play guitar all night long until his fingers are are raw? Why that habit? Well, because I'm, I'm looking towards something, you see. Well, here's the question. What hope? What hope sustains the habit of living for Christ? What hope sets the hab- uh, sustains the habit of setting others ahead of myself for the sake of Christ, for the sake of advancing the gospel? What hope establishes, develops the habit of sacrificial giving of my time, my energies, my skill, my wealth for the sake of the gospel? 
looking at it negatively, maybe we'd say, well, what hope, what hope overcomes the discouragement and the disillusionment of facing frustrations and trying to minister to people in the name of Christ on whatever level that might take place, you know. What hopes can help you overcome the letdowns? And if at the end of 2023, some of you find yourself maybe disconnected, either in some official way from ministry or even just in, the, in, in your life for the sake of Christ, the question would be, what hope can get you back on track so you also can abound, abound in the work of the Lord? And if that's the question, Paul's answer is very direct, the resurrection. And that's what he's telling them, and that's what he's telling you and me, that the absolute certainty of the fact that we will be raised by, from the dead and be made like Christ, that certainty tells us that all we do and endure uh, with people <laughs> in this life for the sake of the gospel, that will have an eternal reward, that it is worth it. The time we invest in people now will be used of God, follow me, will be used of God to affect who will be there in the kingdom. Because our, our preaching the gospel and communicating gospel is God's means to that end. And that's the end. We're heading towards that end. And, and so my ministry, your ministry of the gospel on any level will be used by God to affect who's going to be there and will be used by God to build up and strengthen the experience of those who are on that journey. And that's what Paul wants us to understand from this passage. Uh, now the question would be, before we apply it to ourselves, is, is we need to understand why Paul told this to the Corinthians and what was going on maybe in their minds, you know. Why would he have to reaffirm Something that we take for granted all the time, the resurrection, we talk about it, we, we celebrate it at Easter, we, we, we think about the resurrection, we ought to at least, but why would he have to affirm the fact that it even happened? You know, the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead to, to, a, to a church. <laughs> Let me give you three reasons in the flow of the, of, of the context of this letter. First of all, they had drifted from gospel truth. They had drifted. They were shifting away from gospel truth. Listen to the way chapter 15 begins. Many of you know it well. Paul says to them, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. I need to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. And unless you believed in vain, he says, I'm not sure. I'm not sure you're all holding on to the gospel that I preached to you. I think you're drifting from the gospel. Remember the gospel that saved you, he says. There's a, we baptized a lot of people this last year. Praise the Lord for that. And some of you might be in this room. I would say, remember the gospel that saved you. Don't drift from it. 
The gospel does not need improvement, does not need development. Don't, are you like me, you get tired of all these pop-ups, right? This software needs updating, you know, this software needs updating. Here's good news, the gospel doesn't need updating. It doesn't need any improvement. And so, but they had drifted from the gospel truth, and this led to what? Drifting from gospel hope, because the resurrection is essential to the gospel, to the truth of the gospel. And so he says to them in verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? <laughs> Do you hear his frustration? <laughs> he said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is vain. It's useless, it's empty. Why are we doing on us if he wasn't raised from the dead? And in verse 19, Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If all we receive from Christ through, by believing with him is hope for this life, you know, that he'll help us along in this life and all that, that's all there is, we, we are most to be pitied. And so he moves on because they drifted from gospel truth. They drifted from gospel hope. And when you drift from gospel hope, you drift from gospel work, from gospel labor. Why bother? Why, enter, why be involved, you see? And they became self-absorbed, self-absorbed with their experiences and so forth. But they are drifting from gospel work. They... Look, if, if you look, you don't need to briefly, but I will read it here in four, chapter 14, verse 12. He says to them, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, he said, since you're so eager for experiences of the Holy Spirit, he goes, he goes on to say, strive, strive to excel in building up the church. <laughs> Build up the church. Don't you seek ecstatic experiences? They drifted away from, from this gospel work. And what, what, what would have been the reasons for some of this? Well, I won't go deeply into it, but in Greek philosophy, uh, the material body was really inferior. And the goal of it was that when, and the thought was that when you, when you die, you rid yourself of the physical, you know, it just becomes dust. And finally, the spiritual and the more important is, is set free. And, and apparently they were still clinging to some of that. Why on earth would we want a physical body again? And Paul has to explain, it, it's, it's material. God has plans for the material world. And it's a different material body. And they also evidently thought that they had arrived in some sort of high spiritual uh, capacity in this life through all the gifts of the Spirit. Like I just read there from chapter 14, verse 12. You, what you desire is the manifestation of the Spirit. You rejoice in all this. Guess what? You want to show me that you really are in Christ? Get your hands dirty and edify the church. Build the church. That's the work he's talking about. And they have drifted from that. So they drifted from truth. So they drifted from hope. And therefore, they drifted from the essential ministry of the gospel. And so after resetting, resetting their, their understanding 
of the necessity of the resurrection of Jesus and its connection to our resurrection. He points him to the fact that this life is not the victory. This life is, is, is not where we triumph. This life is, is filled with pain and suffering as so many of you know. The great triumph, the great victory lies ahead at the second coming, at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our final victory when we put on immortality and death is swallowed up It'll be a world without end because it's a world without sin and it's a world without death. And that's the hope that God sets before us. He tells us the end of the story in order to motivate us. And that's what Paul is doing here. In light of this truth, he says, he makes this closing affectionate appeal to them in verse 58. It has two commitments that he's calling for from them based on one foundational principle. So let's look at these two commitments and lastly the principle. First of all, he calls them and he calls us to a steadfast adherence to the content of the gospel, right? The truth of the gospel. That's what Paul's saying when he says, be steadfast, immovable. Uh, be steadfast, that's an adjective that means to stand firm. It means be established in a seat. You know, be, sit down and be fixed. Like when my dad used to say, sit down and be still. <laughs> that's it. Sit down, be still, and then he says, be immovable. Meaning don't oscillate. And then what is he talking about? I think from the chapter, what he's talking about here is don't oscillate, don't move from the truth of the gospel. Don't waver. Don't let people influence your thinking and change your thinking about the gospel. Stay committed to it. Uh, Stay true to the faith, true to your convictions. It's what he tells the Philippians in his letter to them, a church he also loved dearly. He says in verse 27 of chapter 1, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are Here it is, standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Be firm in your convictions. You've heard a lot of things, a lot of narratives this past year, a lot of different explanations in 2023 for why the world is the way it is, why life is the way it is, uh, what, what, what human beings are and so forth. Are you still committed to what Scripture says? The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teaching. And we all know churches somewhere that have Bibles, but they are no longer committed to the truth. They don't see the Bible as truth. And the tense of the verb there, be steadfast, firm, implies that you should continue be becoming this. In other words, you don't arrive once for all and you are fixed. Be becoming steadfast. Be becoming the kind of person that isn't blown around by the winds. You know, when there's no winds blowing, you can seem to be pretty firm. But what happens when you go away to college and the winds of the culture blow hard? and your professors mock the Christian faith 
Are you steadfast? Are you immovable? Are you firm in your faith? What happens when pain, when suffering enters your life? Are you firm? Are you steady? Immovable? Sometimes it's the opposite. Not hardship, but blessing. Poverty can affect people a certain way, but so does wealth. <laughs> the lack of provision and the abundance of provision can set people off from their faith commitments. Be steady, like, a, like that lighthouse that always has the light on no matter what's going on, no matter how dark the night is and the, 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 the waves are crashing. Just be steady. Reminded that, you know, I haven't been in Pier 39 in many years, but I know I've seen this there. But I have more recently seen this in, in Italy and in Spain and some of the piazzas and plazas. There's these guys that become those human statues, right? They, and they spray paint their whole body and face some color, uh, silver, and they just, you know, they just sit there like this. They're immovable. And I, you watch from a distance, all the kids come up, they're trying to, huh, you, know, you know, get this guy to move. <laughs> to do something. And Paul's telling you and me, when it comes to the faith, the gospel doesn't need updating. It doesn't need to be changed. So don't you be listening to voices that tell you it needs to be changed, improved. Be steady. Remain committed to the gospel truth. To the Corinthians that he was telling them, don't buy into the idea that this life is all there is and the only hope we have from Christ is here and that our material bodies don't matter. No, they do matter. There's not only life after death to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but there's life after life after death and that is the resurrection life. And so in light of that, he says remain committed to the gospel. But first you have to what? Be rooted in the gospel deeply. As you start 2024, that's the question. Are you still steady with the gospel? Or you may need to go deeper into your understanding. But it doesn't need to be modified or improved for you. Secondly, his, his second commitment is a, a call to a lavish involvement in the labor of the gospel. A lavish involvement or participation in the labor of the gospel. This is what he's talking about when he says they're always abounding in the work of the Lord. He's describing a lavish involvement, a, a lavish participation in the labor of the gospel. Always refers to what? Consistency. Consistency. There's some dear people in this church just blow me away from the, with the consistency of their ministry year after year after year. Consistency, always abounding. Abounding is a verb that is the idea of overflowing. It's a superlative. It's overdoing something, going way beyond the minimum that's expected. Be, be overflowing. It's like when you get a, a soda and you shake it up and you pour it in a, in a glass. What? It just bubbles up and it boils over, overflowing. He says, let overflow abound in the work of the Lord. The word is use of God's own grace towards us. God's not stingy. <laughs> 
Paul says in Ephesians 1.8 that he, that is the Lord, he lavished upon us the riches of his grace. He didn't just give the minimum. He lavished upon us the overflowing riches of his grace. And it's interesting that this word abounding is the exact word that's used of the Corinthians under understanding of the gifts of the Spirit, the manifestations that they were experiencing. And so Paul uses that word. He brings back and he says, you, you may be abounding in all these experiences, but what you ought to abound in is the work of the Lord. That's what you ought to be doing. Not just collecting experiences, but abounding in the work of the Lord. That's what you should be seeking well, what exactly is the work of the Lord? We need to define that because it's been understood in one of two primary ways. What is the work of the Lord? It's been understood by some in, the, in what we might call the, the maximal way, the broadest way, and the work of the Lord has also been understood in a minimalist way, a very focused way. In other words, the question is, what did Paul have in mind when he was telling the Corinthians that they needed to abound in the work of the Lord? In Paul's mind, as he wrote to the Corinthians, what is the work of the Lord that he's talking to them about? Because that's what he would be talking to us about, right? So the maximalist understanding says this, that the work of the Lord is anything, anything that you, a believer, do for Christ's sake in your life, that you do for, in his name. All that flows from your faith, hope, and love in Jesus Christ that you do for anyone for the sake of the Lord, be it digging ditches, painting homes, nailing walls, working on plumbing, be it writing poems or, or songs, or be it teaching, uh, be, it, uh, be it spending time with the handicap, uh, be it showing uh, any act of gratitude or kindness to another. Whatever you do in the name of the Lord would be the maximalist understanding of the work of the Lord, you see. Uh, God has an interest in that, in other words. And is there a biblical basis for that? Yes, there is, right? In this very letter, in, in chapter 10, verse 31, Paul says to these very, these very Corinthians, he says, well, so whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever it is you do, do it all to what? To the glory of the Lord. So that's the maximalist understanding. And there is some biblical basis for that uh, understanding. And it was the Protestant Reformation that helped recover uh, some of this understanding. You remember that Martin Luther recovered the doctrine of vocation. And he emphasized, Martin Luther emphasized that ordinary activities of our daily life can glorify God just as much as the work he was doing as a monk. That's what Luther, what he recovered. He was famous for saying, God is milking cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. <laughs> and what did, what did Luther mean by that? What he's saying is God's at work in his work and his creation, providing milk for you and me to his glory through the work of that milkmaid. That is milkmaid. That is just as glorifying and honoring to God as my vocation as a priest. Luther recovered that. That is, the, that is the maximal understanding of this verse when Paul says the work of the Lord. And I think, you know, I, it, we're right to emphasize along with Luther and the Reformation that, that all legitimate work and any sort of deed done in the name of Christ uh, can be done to the glory of God. But 
But our question is, is that what Paul means here? Because by emphasizing the maximalist view all the time, we may inadvertently, unwillingly, or unwittingly detract from the fact that the church is given certain priorities. And that we are to be devoting ourselves to those priorities. And I think that that's the, the work of the Lord that Paul has in mind. The very things that these Corinthians were not occupied with. And so the minimalist understanding of the work of the Lord is saying this, that Paul is speaking not about just anything you do in the name of the Lord, but that here Paul is speaking of those activities that advance the gospel and build up believers in the gospel. However it is that you and I contribute in any way or any sort to advance the gospel, evangelism, and build up believers in the gospel, discipleship, edification, that that is the work of the Lord that Paul has in mind here. He began discussing the work of the Lord again back in chapter 3. And he defines his ministry as the work of the Lord. And the church was to be doing the work of the Lord with him. Chapter 3, remember these verses, right? Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages, here it is, according to his labor. Paul says, my work, my labor was what? I came to Corinth, I preached the gospel to you. I planted, Apollos came, what did he do? His labor, his work was building you up. He was watering you. And then he says, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now he changes the metaphor from farming to building, to construction. You are God's building. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. He's talking to the church. You all are building upon the foundation that I laid and Apollos watered, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work, there it is, work, the work of the Lord, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is the work of the Lord that Paul has in mind in verse 58 of chapter 15. Spiritual work on any level that contributes to what? The advance of the gospel and the edification of the church. In chapter 9, verse 1, Paul says, Are you not my work in the Lord? The church at Corinth, they were his work in the Lord. And then in chapter 16, one last reference for you. Chapter 16, following chapter 15 down below, he says this in verse 10. He says, when Timothy comes, 
See that you put him at ease among you. We know elsewhere that Timothy was somewhat, maybe we call it nervous, withdrawn. I'm not sure. And if there's ever a church that's going to be weird to be around, it's going to be Corinth, right? With all of their problems. Is when Timothy comes, go, go, go easy on him. <laughs> Why? Look at the rest of verse 10. For he is doing the work of the Lord, as I am. So here we have in the closest context of verse 58, the work of the Lord is what? The work of Paul did, what Timothy was doing, which was advancing the gospel and edifying the saints. Now, we might say, yeah, but Paul and Timothy, these are official, you know, this is an apostle and, and an apostolic representative. Hey, verse 58 is written to the whole church. All you be abounding always in the work of the Lord. Because that work of advancing the gospel and building up the saints is something we, we all contribute in some way, either very directly, very public like mine, or indirectly and behind the scenes and, and not even in this building or on these grounds, but it's the work of the Lord. That's the design of God that it's not carried on by a few professionals. You know this. I know you know this, but I'm driving it home here at the end of the year. What's Paul saying in Ephesians chapter 4? He says that he, verse 11, he's referring to Christ. Christ has ascended, and he's poured out his spirit upon his people, and he, Christ, the ascended Savior, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, or the pastors and teachers, or pastor teachers, to do what? Verse 12, to equip the saints... To what end? For the work of the ministry. That's how we understand it. That we might all do the what? The work. That work, that spiritual work, or contribute to it, participate in it on some level, somehow. And he goes on to say how that takes place. He says, for example, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, who is Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Two things there. We speak the truth that builds each other up. And again, you say, yeah, but you're a preacher, and then, you know, and, and Paul was a preacher, and Timothy was a, at the very least a teacher. Listen, I asked the folks in first hour, I'll ask you again this very difficult question. Do you talk? Yes. So talk truth in love to your brother, to your sister. You don't have to stand up here to do that. When someone's discouraged, speak truth and love. When someone's absent, speak truth and love. When someone's wrestling with something, speak truth and love. That's it. Participate in the life. Speaking truth and love. And then he says, as every part is contributing, the church builds its up. When each little connective tissue in the body of Christ, like a ligament, like a, a, a muscle, it all works together to build the body up together in love. When I worked for my dad, I was operating uh, huge scrapers, caterpillar scrapers, and uh, bulldozer, and compactors. And these equipment have all these, uh, you know, 
hydraulic pistons and parts and, and, and oil. I remember it would happen, this happened all the time. You'd be working on a job and then, you know, the scraper was the key uh, tractor at that job site, uh, but the scraper broke down. And when it broke down, everything, the whole job broke down. Other, other things had to stop working because this broke down. And then we'd have to get in there and dig in there or call a mechanic. And you're going inside this scraper, this massive piece of equipment. You go underneath, you find something. There's this little part this big. That's all it was. But it made the scraper not work. And the scraper couldn't work. So the, the, the water truck couldn't work. The compactor couldn't work. Nobody could work that we have an effect upon each other. I praise God for the many that serve. There's so many that faithfully serve. But we could have areas of ministry that break down. Why do they break down? Because that, that part of the body is not participating in the life in some way or another. Thankfully, again, there are many here who participate on various levels behind the scene. Doesn't have to all be up front, like I said. And I thank God for you. I do say, though, excel still more. Paul says, abound, overflow. And we, we were, by God's grace, able to rekindle some ministries in 2023 that, you know, ministries got all kind of jagged when, when COVID hit and all the... F- you know, the great uh, migration and all that. And so in 23, what did we do? You know, it's like, hey, let's reorganize. But we couldn't get it all back to where it was. And maybe it doesn't need to be, right? Vision changes. But the point is, we're still not, we're still not running 100%. It's, it's, uh, I know we can. I know we can. We're still climbing up the hill. And that will take what? That will take some more of you in 2024. Uh, needing to identify your your place in the machine, what, what part you play. I, and listen, I say right now up front, I understand that there are, there are limitations of all sorts, right? Health is one of them. Some people have chronic illness and other struggles with their health, and that is part of it. I, we understand that. And others uh, uh, are limited by virtue of their station of life, you know, be it the, your age or be it just where you find yourself. Sometimes you just... You, just to make a living, you're occupied so many hours. I, I get that, you know. You, we, we can be cash rich and time poor. But it does not need to become an excuse for absolutely no interest whatsoever, involvement, no speaking truth and love at all to anyone. It can't be that. It can't be that, beloved. And all of this is based on what? The final foundation, this principle at the end of verse 58. Look at it. Why should we abound? Why should we abound in the work of the Lord? Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And here's the word, knowing, knowing, being aware of something, having come to realize something, knowing that in the Lord, your labor, that word means toil, Some ministry is toil, man. Isn't it? Some of it is toil. Getting ready to teach every community group or lead it or preparing for a Sunday school class for children and whatever whatever it may be. Some ministry involves toil. Not all of it, but some does. 
knowing that your toil, in the Lord your toil, your labor is not in vain. Knowing, knowing. Why is it not in vain? Because what he has told us throughout the chapter before, because it's all heading towards the end. It's heading towards the resurrection where there will be reward and acknowledgement for what we have done. And every contribution you made in the life of someone, however small, may have been what God used to make sure they were there in the kingdom. And secondly, that their journey there was enjoyable, that they enjoyed the joy of salvation and were able to honor God in this life. Because of your contribution, however small, where it might be, be it behind the scenes through a more rigorous prayer for what's happening in the church or, or supporting financially what's happening in the church. Right after verse 58, the next thing Paul says in verse, chapter 16 is now concerning the collection for the saints. <laughs> because that's part of the work of the Lord. It needs to be supported. And so in 2024, what am I asking? I'm asking by God's grace that you would recognize that however you invest, if you keep the perspective that all of this is heading towards that end, right? If you're able to retain that in your mind, you will remain steadfast in your convictions, in hope, and in your serving of others. It becomes, it becomes tiring, I know, to not be thanked for what you do. It becomes tiring to not see responses to what you do in the here and now. Golly, I know about that. It becomes discouraging to not see any fruit on any level and then to associate it with the price that you're paying, you know, to, to, to serve some other people. But knowing that only those who have heard the gospel will be there. And that's it. And that God's means for them here in the gospel is you and me. Knowing that their experience in this life will be benefited by your building them up. That is designed to sustain you in those hours of why go on. You know. Over the years I've found myself in some odd places where I've thought that. Uh, it's, it's happened in Latin America several times. It's happened in Mexico. It's happened in Honduras. And I'm just waiting for it to happen in Costa Rica. Uh, it's where I find myself on some trip, some mission. I'm in, like I was in Baja. I'm in this truck, this old, you know, this old Toyota pickup can barely run. You know, you're smelling the exhaust and the windows are down because there's no, no air conditioning. It's the middle of summer. It's 100 plus degrees in Baja. The road is nothing but rocks. You're going up and down. And I ate something that's making my gut just, you know, my gut is just wrenching. And I'm on my way to preach to 20 people. And I'm in the truck going like this, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, God, why am I here? <laughs> what am I doing? It's so much nicer here with you all. <laughs> why, 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 why do that? Because as Francis Schaeffer once said, there's, in the kingdom of God, there is no small people, and there's no small place be it 10 people in some hut, be it some uneducated person 
who can't even read the Bible. There are no small people and there's no small place. There is a reward. For everything you and I do, we pour into others. It is known by God who loves you. He's our Father. He placed you there for it. And the full fruit of it will not be known in this life, but it will be revealed in the end when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The author of Hebrews author of Hebrews says to his people there who were withdrawing, they were withdrawing, and he says to them, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. Some of you need to hear that today very personally. This is the Father speaking to you. Our Father. He's not unjust so as to overlook your work. Oh, I may overlook it. Someone else is already overlooking. He isn't. And the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. He sees it. He loves you for it. When he looks at you, what he sees is his son. And he's pleased. And he's going to use it. And it's only in glory we'll we'll see the full measure of it all. 2024 starts tomorrow. He's calling us to a steadfast adherence to the content of the gospel next year. A lavish involvement in the labor of the gospel based on a certain confidence in the promise of the gospel that the Lord sees and the Lord rewards. It's fitting now, as we said in first hour, to finish this year with the Lord's Supper. To reflect on where we've been what God's done for us, and to think, where do I fit in in next year? And then to receive the comfort from our Father through the supper, to commemorate together the death and redemption that we have in Christ, to participate together in all the benefits of what He's done for us, and lastly, to anticipate his, his second coming.